0: Connecting life and faith. This is Connections. After nearly four decades in traditional church ministry in the United States, Douglas Brower found himself halfway around the world ministering in a church, and the lessons he's learned there have now been distilled into a book. We're going to talk about that book in a little while this morning with Douglas.
1: So tell us a little bit about yourself and why you decided to take the path of ministry. Oh, I was hoping you were going to ask that question. Uh, I was not uh, heading into ministry uh, at any point in, in my early life. It was not something I dreamed about. I dreamed about being a, a baseball player. But uh, during college years, I worked for a Christian publisher, uh, Erdman's, which is based in oh, my yeah. hometown. Uh, good, I'm glad you're familiar with oh, it. They're what? also the publisher of, of, of my book.
0: You're in Grand Rapids then, or you're, you're from Grand Rapids?
1: Exactly. Yeah. Yes. So I, I spent a couple of summers during college there doing copywriting, copy editing, and I noticed that uh, the senior editors had theological degrees, and I thought, okay, if <laughs> the the route to a, a job like that is clearly to go to theological school, and and that's what I did, and uh, I'll give you the the shorter version here between. Uh, when I reached the second year, I realized that I was not going to graduate without working in a church. <laughs> Who knew that you had to work in a church? So, so uh, I took a year off between second and third years to uh, do an internship in a, uh, a church in my tradition, and it was a life-changing year. I'll, I'll just I'll leave it at that. I, I had a profound sense of call and, uh, And it was not because I was so promising as a uh, preacher or pastor, but uh, I just felt like it was what I was meant to do with my life. And and I um, went back to seminary for my third year and uh, had a whole new vocational direction.
0: What was it about... Yeah, that church experience that uh, just spoke to you and changed the, the course of your life. What, what what were some of the big moments, or were there big moments? Was it more like yes. a, a series of little ones?
1: No, I think there was a big moment, and I don't come from a tradition that emphasizes these life-changing moments, you know, the Damascus Road type of thing, but in the end, I I think that's what I would call it. Uh, I, I grew up in in the church. My parents are believers, and I, I sat next to my father every Sunday and you know in in worship. So it's not as though I w- was unfamiliar with uh, what the church teaches. But uh, one Sunday, I was preaching about the parable of the prodigal son, and uh, you know <laughs> explaining to my people what uh, grace means. And then it, suddenly, in the middle of that sermon, I had to stop. I it, I started. I don't. I mean, tears are not a regular part of my preaching, but I, I suddenly got it in a way that I had never gotten it before, and it was so. I mean, all I can say was so wonderful, and of course, it takes, as you as you well know, it takes days, weeks, months to process and uh, an experience like that. I had a mentor who, you know, gave it a name, and uh, I mean, he he said, "You're you're, this is what grace is." All about, and so I finally had a name for this experience that I that I felt.
0: So, how does a young guy from Grand Rapids, Michigan, growing up, want to be a ball player? All of a sudden, end up in Switzerland as a pastor?
1: Yeah. So, throughout my ministry, uh, thirty-five years, I had served uh, primarily homogeneous congregations, white, uh, suburban, uh, and I. I you know, at at, at about thirty five years, I thought I knew how to do this pretty well. Uh, but I also began to think I, I don't want to go on autopilot. You know, I want to continue to be challenged, and and I wasn't sure what that would look like. But I I did have this worry that I would just go through the motions toward the end of my ministry. And this is a case of of uh, being careful what you pray for. You
0: know, <laughs> yes. <laughs>
1: So it was right about that time that uh, a church in Switzerland made contact with me and said, "Would you be interested?" And I, <laughs> my wife has followed me around all over the place and has had to reinvent herself everywhere we've gone. And so I, I turned to her and, you know, she rolled her eyes and, and said, "Yes." Uh, it, so it, that that was my motivation to seek a new challenge in my life, and boy, did I ever find it. I mean, that was the most challenging experience, uh, I think, of my entire ministry. And why was it so challenging? So, <laughs> when it, the truth of the matter is, when you serve a church that is uh, homogeneous, people not only look alike, they tend to think alike, you, you, you speak their language. In other words, you you, you know how they think. When you suddenly find yourself in a diverse cultural situation, all of those expectations about other people go away. And so I found myself listening more carefully than I had ever had in my life. Uh, On any given Sunday, there were more than two dozen nationalities represented. Uh, And I'll I'll give you a wonderful example. On, On my last Pentecost at the church, I found 26 language groups and my my <laughs> my idea at the beginning of worship to, was to invite them to call out come Holy Spirit in their oh, that's cool. native native tongue so and, and it was relatively easy to find twenty six different really? language groups yeah no problem <laughs> in Switzerland I'm
0: picturing just I'm I don't know why but my Canadian uh, mind is thinking Switzerland is just going to be all Swiss people white, blonde-haired, <laughs> blue-eyed, right? That's not the case. Yeah,
1: except that Europe has changed. Uh, uh, 30% of the people in Zurich, not so true in smaller uh, you know, rural areas, but 30% of the people in Zurich come from somewhere else.
0: Wow, that's amazing.
1: And yeah. they all just so happen to yeah, be but... in the church that you were <laughs> yeah. a pastor at.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I... I didn't I didn't exactly have a captive audience. There are three or four English speaking uh, congregations, but there isn't a lot of choice. So, and our, our church pops up on a Google search. And when someone moves to Switzerland and looks for an English speaking congregation, then it, I mean we tend to uh, we, can, we we tend to find those newcomers pretty easily.
0: So you've, like you said, Europe has changed a lot, and a lot of immigration and stuff there. I mean, a big topic throughout North America right now in Canada a bit, but especially the United States is uh, people worried about immigration and its impact on your way of life and the church, right? Um, so what have you yeah. learned through that and of how we should be responding as as the church?
1: Yeah, that's an excellent question. And and just so you know, I tried to stay, in my uh, book, I tried to stay away from the policy decisions. that That is not a great interest to me. I, I wanted to look at the world as it is. And the fact of the matter is, we do live in a diverse uh, culture, right? And and so what is the Church's response to that? I mean, that was my angle. It's not whether we should welcome immigrants. Uh, uh, that was not the, the, the issue for me. It, the issue for me was to challenge North American churches to look into their neighborhoods and to recognize the diversity that's there, and then to begin to respond to that.
0: I uh, pastored for almost a decade, and I loved my church. I was at one church the entire time, an amazing church, but as a youth pastor and then associate and then a lead pastor, the one thing that drove me crazy was that our (laughs) congregation did not look like our neighborhood. Yeah, yeah. So how do we... we how do we reach out to uh, people that are, are, well, they are different than us, right? They have different backgrounds, maybe different languages. How do we start changing that as church communities? You know, surveys tend to
1: show that that, uh, church people are aware of this, that uh, if you uh, probe a little bit, they will say they would like to look more like their neighborhoods. But then when you probe (laughs) a little bit more deeply, then then there's some pushback because uh, church members tend to be unsure of what's going to be required of them. How much will we have to change to be uh, welcoming? But but there is this surface uh, awareness that we could be far more diverse than we are, and I think churches ought to nurture that and you know and, and call it out. Can I give you one example of this?
0: Yeah, sure. Uh,
1: I served a church in in Wheaton, Illinois, home of uh, Wheaton College. Yeah. And uh, I was there for a good long time, well over a decade, raised my kids there and so on. And and we, too, noticed that our church, which tended to be older, did not look like the surrounding area, which which tended to be very young. But. (laughs) Uh so we became intentional about growing younger. What what I realized now that I didn't realize then was that we also were very white, and we, we seemed to be unaware of a African-American population in our city. I, I just thought, well, wow, this is one of those cities that tends to be uh, white, and th- as it turned out, that wasn't true at all.
0: You're just kind of oblivious to it. <laughs> Yeah, it takes yeah. considerable effort,
1: so uh, I had to f- seek out the African American pastor in my community, and I had to, you know, show up in his church at the Martin Luther King Jr. service each year. I had to; you know, it, it, it took a considerable amount of effort on my part to cultivate these relationships. That it, it, there was an enormous payoff in the end, but at the beginning, it. it requires a lot of work and i'm sure pastors are already overwhelmed without right (laughs) without taking on another responsibility
0: what is uh in your view what are some of the greatest things that can be gained from becoming more multicultural in our church communities yeah
1: i mean if, if you focus only on the effort required then most people would give up because it really is hard work but the the I'm trying to find the language of the payoff, the reward uh, for being welcoming is a, a vastly different view of the world. To, to see the world, for example, through the eyes of a Christian from India is to, is to, is to have your mind blown, to, to be honest about it. Uh, Christians from global uh, communities see the world so, so very differently. I'm, I'm trying to think of, oh, wait, I, I mean, here's an easy one. Uh, my wife and I were having dinner one evening with a, a couple from India, and, and we said, well, where did you meet? And thinking, <laughs> you know, like a North American couple they might have met in college. Or, uh, and uh, then they began to talk to us about their arranged marriage.
0: Oh, wow. and
1: <laughs> Yeah. And they said, you know, we're, we're raising our children in a different culture now. This is probably not going to be repeated in the next generation. But for us, it made sense. And I mean, it's clear they have a loving relationship. But <laughs> my mind was blown that night, I have to say.
0: Yeah, right. It's just uh, totally different and opposite from our experiences here in the West.
1: Yeah, just one more thought about that. Uh, in in their minds, uh, a relationship based on romantic love alone is a kind of a flimsy way to begin. And, to be, and yet, huh. in our culture, that's the accepted uh, path to, to marriage, right? But, but they would say there needs to be more than romantic love at, at the beginning. So I'm, anyway, I'm still processing uh, what that might mean. Why did you decide to write the book, How to Become a Multicultural Church, and why is it so important to have a book out there on this topic? Yeah, for, well, for one thing, there isn't. when I first wrote my book, there wasn't much out there. Now uh, more books are beginning to appear, which is terrific. Uh, so that was one issue. I, I started to read widely. That's my way of getting into something new when I became a parent for the first time. I, I read a book about it. <laughs> Not that that was all that helpful, but uh, so reading was one step. But then, for me, uh, writing things out is a way for me to understand what I think and what I believe. If I'm, I, I once wrote a book on marriage, and it wasn't that the world needed another book about marriage, but this was my way of trying to understand for myself what it is Christians believe about marriage so i had the same motivation for the multicultural church i wanted to sketch it out so that i could uh, master the subject
0: well yeah what was that process like for you was there stuff that bubbled up that you had learned years ago but you kind of you didn't realize that you learned it till you actually wrote it out and you're like oh <laughs> well
1: i'll give you an example I, um i i think i started the, the the book started at a men's breakfast, of all places, uh, early in my my time in Switzerland. And it, it apparently men all, all over the world like to get together for breakfast. Who knew? And I, I, I was very naive at the beginning. I didn't know what I was doing in this culture. But I, I, I asked the men, tell, tell me where home is for you. And little did I know that that is a very difficult question. I learned not to ask it. Uh, or only ask it in certain situations. Uh, some of the men wept, hmm. trying to explain uh, where home was for them. I was just asking about their country of origin, but it turns out that home is a much more complicated subject. So that became the first chapter in my book: "Where is home? You know, what, what, what do we believe about that, and what does that mean for people who come to us from other cultures? So, you know, home for them looks." looks a lot different.
0: So what is a multicultural church, then? What does a multicultural church look like? (laughs) Is it just different skin colors gathered together, worshiping together, or is it more to that and deeper?
1: Yeah, I mean, you seem to sense where this ought to go. Uh, I think too often what happens is that we have multiracial or multiethnic churches where people exist side by side or, or where there's a dominant culture and, and people from other cultures just sort of go along with the dominant culture. But in, in my mind and in my, my book, I, I argue that a true multicultural church is one where the cultures try to engage with each other and understand each other, where we learn from each other. And I think that's a biblical uh, point of view, that there is something that other people have to teach me. Right, I think um, I, I think this is a, a clear message of the old uh, of the New Testament that w- when we approach another person, we assume that there is something valuable in them, you know, that we could be changed by uh, by meeting and encountering them. So, really, it gives people a new perspective on how people look at the same faith differently. Yeah, it, um, it requires a tremendous amount of humility to be a true multicultural church so you have to admit to yourself that you you, while you have answers and while they may be good ones there may be other ways of thinking about
0: critical issues traditionally canada is referred to as a multicultural society but the united states is a melting pot considered to be a melting pot right so i'm just curious what the response has been like to this call to become multicultural in our faith communities (laughs)
1: <laughs> you, you know, uh, Canada claims a, f- a far more success at this than uh, the United States does, and that may be that w- may well be true. That because Canada has made it a priority, uh, that uh, you all are enjoying much more success. I, I, I it, my observation is is that our cultures tend to keep to themselves. That it's that the United States is not a melting pot. Right, that we we tend to silo, uh, and, and this is never more visible than it is on Sunday mornings. Yeah, right, we like seeks like, and so we we worship with people who look and think like we do.
0: What's the response you know, been like, like to the book?
1: <laughs> I wish. I mean, I was trying to nudge the North American church to. Think about this, and the fact that you're having this conversation with me is a good sign. But there needs to be so much more. There's so much more that we we can do. But th- this is this is a start, uh, c- creating a kind of an awareness of w- where we are and where we could be.
0: So a good start for a you lot know, of us is picking up the book.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I would love that. <laughs> I would love that. In it, in I, I think the tipping point is 2030 when. Uh, in North America, the white population will become a minority population. Estimates vary, but mm. I think this is going to become even more urgent. The, the issue is going to become even more urgent uh, in the decade to come. For people who want to pick up your book and want to learn more about this, how do they go about doing that? Yeah, so it's available, obviously, on uh, Amazon. It's it's available directly from the publisher, I think that's probably how people buy books these days, right? Uh, our bookstores have disappeared.
0: And what about, uh, do you have a personal website and stuff like that? We can follow along with your journey and more writings and things like that.
1: Hey, I'm glad you asked that. Yes, I do have a website. I have uh, uh, a blog, actually. It's a, it's a website called uh, org. And uh, I post uh, regularly. I'm a columnist, believe it or not, for the hometown newspaper. And so my columns appear on the blog as well as in the paper. Nice. Yep, love to have you visit there.
0: Well, it was a great conversation. I'm going to check out that book, I think. It's a really interesting topic to me. Thanks so much for joining us, Doug.
1: Thank you for having me. It's been good to get to know you, too.